Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 14, A Helper Fit for Him. And in this episode, we're going to look at Genesis 2, 18 through 23, to the very first time in the Bible, in the creation where something is spoken about as being not good, and what we learn about God's intentions for mankind by remedying that situation. And then we're going to look a little bit at the relationship between man and woman, why woman is made from man, and what significance that has to understanding our place as image bearers of God on the earth. And so I'm excited for this episode as we're nearing the end of this perfect garden creation state, and we'll rapidly be moving forward in the biblical story to understand exactly all that went wrong. Um, But first, we need to understand all that was made good and was made right. And so I'm excited for this episode. Here we go. As always, if you have a Bible, I would always encourage you to follow along as I read. But if you're just listening in and don't have a Bible handy, that's okay. I'll read the passages that are necessary for you to be able to follow along. So in Genesis 2, 18 through 23, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now in verse 18, this is the first time, as I mentioned in the introduction, that in the entire creation and in the biblical story to this point, that the idea of something being not good is spoken about. And it's spoken about directly with reference to it being not good that the man should be alone. And then the Lord God says that he will make a helper fit for Adam. Now, the idea of a helper fit for Adam is is the word helper is actually just a word that that describes someone who provides what is lacking in someone else. Uh, Right here, it provides what is lacking in a man who can do what the man alone can't do. Um, And so that's really the idea that's being spoken about here. Um, I mean, some translations of this is that it's it's someone that corresponds to him, someone who is fit for him, a helper fit for the man corresponding to um, his counterpart. Um, There are some ways of translating this that um, according to his opposite. And so there there are actually a couple of different levels going on simultaneously here regarding what's being introduced into the story. Um, And I think what we need to ask is some of these kinds of questions. Why is it not good that the man should be alone? And what we know so far in the story is that Male and female were created in the image of God, and they were commissioned to rule over the creation. Um, Adam was also put into the garden, as we saw a few episodes ago, to work the ground and to keep it. 
And so when the Lord God assesses this situation and says that it is not good that the man should be alone, what you and I need to do is to recognize that something about what he's being called to do and to be is made incomplete while he remains by himself. And so I would say there is at least a few levels to this. And the very first is that to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. At ground zero, most basic level, Adam needs someone else to procreate with so that he is able to fill the earth with other image bearers and to multiply across the face of the earth. And so the creation here of of woman, which we get to briefly after this little interlude of, of Adam naming the animals, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But for woman to be brought to the man is to complete him. It's to to be a helper that is suitable or a helper that is corresponding to him. And yet we also know that to work the ground and keep it, this must in fact be some type of a task that cannot be done in isolation. And so you you also get this idea that to work, which again is something that is inherent in the creation, it is a good part of the creation. It is causing the raw materials of the garden to be worked and ordered and structured in such a way that flourishing and life and potential for growth continues to happen. You know, um, houses don't build themselves, right? Uh, Pyramids don't build themselves as would have been maybe a common way of thinking about this back in the ancient Near East. But the minds and the energies and the efforts that go into um, constructing things, building civilizations, uh, building temples, which will be a very vital part of Israel's life as a nation. These are things that can't be done alone. And so for the very first time, we're introduced to the idea, at least as far as the story is being told, of the importance and the necessity of community. Um, it is not a stretch to look at Genesis 2 and to see it as, as in very much involving man by himself in relationship to the Lord God is in a state of being not good unless there are other people with him. Now, I could and really would like to let that sink in if you, um, if you will allow it to. We could stop right there and ponder this concept that in a, a wonderful, beautiful, uh, flourishing garden, man with the Lord God is still in a state of things being not good. And I know that's hard for many, um, maybe, maybe longtime Christians to really wrap their minds around, but this is going to be one of the areas that I want to push strongly on in terms of the need to unbind the Bible from some of the ways that it has been misread and misapplied. And that is this idea that it is okay within the, the nature of things for it simply to be a, a relationship that you have between you and God, but that it doesn't ultimately involve other people. Or that if you are an extrovert and you happen to like other people, then you find friends and you, you do things together. But but as far as it goes, um, you would much rather have your relationship with God be something that is personal and private only as it relates to you and to him. And yet to be a human made in the image of God is to be involved in tasks and responsibilities and priorities that require 
the interaction with fellow human beings in community. And ultimately what Jesus will seek to reclaim and then restore is a humanity working in community with one another. He builds the church. He creates the church, which is a massive community of believers. And it is not coincidental that the passage that we'll look at in our next episode, being the man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife, is a passage that explicitly speaks of marriage. And yet Jesus and Paul will use that passage a lot to talk about the relationship between Christ and the church, this renewed humanity, this renewed community. And so in Genesis 2.18, for it to be described as being not good, that the man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. We are ultimately, toward the end of the passage, introduced to the creation of woman. And yet, I want to remind every one of you, as I often remind myself, that when you are reading Genesis 1 and 2, we are in fact reading a description of a, of a glorious, um, perfect place where the Lord God dwells with man, with woman, in perfect harmony. We do not know this world by experience. We do not know what it would be like to be in a state where everything is working exactly as it should and the Lord God walks in the garden in the cool of the day with man and with woman and the creation gives way to the efforts that man and woman put in cultivating it and keeping it. The reason why that's important is because when we look at our society today, we have a lot of messed up views about where women fit into the role in society or in the church, or in cultures, or in families. And the reason why we have that is very crystal clear a result of the fall, which we'll get to when we look at Genesis chapter 3. But I think it's very, very helpful, if I'm going to use the same type of word that's used in Genesis 2, but when the Lord God says that he will make a helper fit for the man, this word helper is in no way communicating something of lesser status something of lower class. Um, We talked about the class system, and that resonates a whole lot more with the Enuma Elish than it does with the Genesis 1 and 2 creation narrative. But um, throughout the Old Testament, it's not coincidental, but throughout the Old Testament, God himself is regularly referred to as a helper. Um, Psalm 46.1 is the clearest example, but it simply says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Um, It doesn't get a lot clearer than that. The Psalms are filled with references to this. Even in in Exodus chapter 18, um, Moses is speaking about the, the the author is speaking about the sons that Moses had after he fled fled from, from Pharaoh in Egypt and he's describing his sons. And in Exodus 18 verse four, he says he named his second son Eleazar For he said, the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And so the Lord God is spoken about time and time and time again as a helper to man, as someone who is actually able um, to provide what is lacking in a man. And it is not second-class citizenship for God 
to be spoken about as man's helper, and therefore it is inconceivable to the biblical author in Genesis 2 that woman would be considered a second-class citizen by being called man's helper. And so it's clear right at the beginning to make sure that we understand that man and woman, male and female, were to rule and have dominion over the creation together. It was never God's intention that one would would domineer and rule over the other. And yet this is what you see in Babylon. This is what you see in Egypt. You know, the Pharaoh or the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, or then later King Darius from Persia. These various kings alone bear the image of their gods. And whether they are married to one woman or, or multiple women, the women were always there to serve the kings and to do his bidding. But that is not the way things are described in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God is a helper for man. He is helping man to do what man alone can't do. And it's because it's the Lord God who first assesses man in his loneliness and says that we need to fix this situation because he needs someone with him to enable him to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. He needs someone to rule alongside him in community, in harmony, in fellowship with him. And we need both male and female in order to rightly represent who God is. Genesis 1 tells us that he made them male and female, but both are made in his image. And the Lord God himself will not only be spoken of as a helper to man and an ever-present help in trouble or in time of need, but the Lord God will also use images of a mother and of a, of a nursing mother or of a mother hen. And Jesus references this in the Gospels when he speaks about as a, as a hen covering over her chicks with his, his wings. That's what he wishes he could do for Israel. And so the Lord God is often spoken about in terms that would represent both a father and a mother. And male and female get at these various aspects of the character of of the Lord God and who he actually is. And so when both are placed together in perfect intimacy, perfect relationship, perfect community, the human race has a much better chance of rightly imaging the character and nature of the Lord God. The phrase, a helper fit for him, actually appears twice in the passage in Genesis 2. And it appears for the first time at the end of verse 18, and then it also appears at the end of verse 20. And sandwiched in the middle is the idea of the Lord God bringing the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, to Adam to see what he would name them. And whatever he called those living creatures, that was its name. And so what you actually find is that the Lord God brings aspects of the creation that are already there. Um, And as we're reading along in the story, we almost assume, oh, if there's not found a suitable helper for Adam, then maybe he will find a suitable helper amidst all of these other creatures that God has made. And we find as we read through that even after naming all of them, he doesn't find a suitable helper. And so the Lord God does something very different. He puts the man into a deep sleep and takes one of his ribs and fashions a woman out of that rib and then brings her to the man. But before we get to that point, I just wanted to point out that the task that the Lord God actually gives to the man is the privilege and the honor of naming 
the animals. And it says, whatever he called them, that was their name. And in the biblical story, to, to name something or to receive a name or to identify a place by a particular activity and to therefore call it by a name, the, the Bible does something far different than our culture. Um, names get thrown around um, very loosely and rarely have depth and significance, although thoughtful parents will oftentimes put meaning and thought um, insignificance into the names they choose for their children. And so in that way, we, we, we see something similar here. But there is a very, very essential relationship that exists between the thing being named and the name that it is given. And so we see this all over the Bible, um, names for God, names for places, names for people. Um, here's just one example. And this one pulls in a couple of these. But when Hagar is provided um, for by the Lord in Genesis 16, Hagar, um, Abram's and Sarah's maidservant from Egypt, she is actually the first person in the Bible to give God a name, which is not insignificant. And I hope to spend some time looking at just why in a future episode. But it says in verse 13 of Genesis 16, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, and it simply means the well of the living one who sees me. And so here in this passage, we have a, a location that is named after something, but we also have Hagar naming God something specific that is essential to who he is as how it identifies as the living one, the one who sees her when no one else does. Later on in Genesis, we will receive, we'll hear much about Jacob and Esau, but even that Jacob's name itself means he cheats. Um, there's something about his name connected to his character, and we will see that play out in the biblical story. Um, at the beginning of the book of Ruth, you have Elimelech and his wife Naomi, who leave Bethlehem and travel to Moab and the two sons of Elimelech, Malon and Kilion, marry wives. Ruth is one of them and Orpah is the other. And before you even get to verse five of the book of Ruth in chapter one, Malon and Kilion die. Like their names are almost only given in the story long enough to set the scene up for us to focus in on the really important characters that the author wants us to know about. Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah, and quickly Orpah falls off. But it's interesting because even in that story, the word Malon means sickly, and the name Kilion means wasting away. And so that, I mean, that, that is a sad state of affairs, and I don't know too many moms who would choose to name their sons that, thinking, what an adorable baby boy, I'm so excited, let me name my son sickly and wasting away. And while there are a lot of things that could be said about this, at the very least, the state at which the book of Ruth was written was a sad time. There was a famine going on in Bethlehem. The house of the, the town of, of bread had no bread. Um, and, and it was an unfortunate state of, of, of events, but it was ultimately rooted in the time of the judges when Israel was not following the Lord well at all. And so it simply goes to show that naming things has an essential relationship between the two. And so here's Adam, here's the first man living out his calling of ruling 
and having dominion over the creation by being given the task of naming things and whatever he chose to name them, that was its name. And so this is a a component of what it means to rule well. And as he's doing this, he is subduing, he's ruling, he's acting on behalf of the way that the Lord God commissioned him to act. And yet in the process of naming all of these creatures, of seeing all of these creatures, some of which will very clearly come into play to help man work the ground, you know, oxen and pulling plows and things of that sort. There are definitely supportive roles that the creatures, the beasts of the field play and the birds of the heavens, but nothing that, that qualifies as a helper fit for Adam, someone that corresponds to or someone that can enable him to do what he, what he needs to do. Because among the animals, there is no social equal to share the man's function and place as ruler over the creation. And so the Lord God identifies this and we're told that he caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, again, as we're picking up themes that will surface later, this idea of the Lord God putting man into a deep sleep and then doing something tremendous powerful, prepared to bless the man in a tremendous way, it actually has a lot of similarity to Genesis 15, when the Lord God himself, after making a promise to Abram that his descendants would far outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, and that he would, the Lord God would make Abram into a great nation and bless the world through him, we're told that he puts Abram into a deep sleep And the Lord God himself walks through these halves of of animals as a burning fire pot and as a large torch signifying to Abram that he is about to bless him in a tremendous way, but that the Lord God himself is the one who is going to pull this off. And so when you read about the covenant and the promises that the Lord God makes to Abram, it's a blessing that will extend across the rest of the biblical story highlighting ultimately in the the bringing and the the life death burial and resurrection of Jesus himself which is an ultimate point of blessing and so what we're but what we're being shown is that in a deep sleep it's something very similar the lord god is putting the man into a deep sleep and doing something profound for the man blessing for the man in a profound way is happening while the man is asleep this is an action of the lord god himself And talk about intimacy and personal nature. Adam, the man, gets a description of the the dust of the earth. But the woman is taken from the man, from a rib. And God doesn't just form, he makes into a woman. It's a term that's often translated build. God puts a lot of thought and a lot of care into the creation of, of this woman and she he brings her to the man and the man says in verse 23 this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man and again if you have a bible or if you don't you can look at this later but if you have one in front of you you'll notice that this verse 23 is pulled out this is a the first little poetic um, description of anything given 
Um, Genesis 1.26 was actually similar, but here is mankind himself speaking. It's the first time that man of any kind speaks at all. And guess what? It's poetry in recognition of a woman. It's poetry in recognition of marriage, of love, of passion, of excitement, of exuberance. And this is not coincidental at all. You could even look through music, through poetry, through symphony, through romance, through through all of human history, and you will find more beauty crafted, painted, sculpted, uh, musically played, dances done, in the name of a recognition of a beautiful woman who simply in her stunning presence in the face of of a man will cause men to do unbelievable things. And this is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture that the very first time man speaks, we have this. We have poetry, crafted, speaking about beauty, speaking about all, speaking about life, and love and Adam recognizing, ah, at last, someone who corresponds to me, someone that I can share life with, someone that can, can be my counterpart, can be my help, can correspond to me in a perfect way like no other creature in the creation can. Now I have something and someone that I can that I can serve God's creation well right alongside. And so this is exactly what it means for the Lord God to have created male and female. We we gave just the 30,000 foot view of that in Genesis chapter 1, but now in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God creates, he builds, he fashions a perfect creature from the man brings her to the man, he recognizes the similarities, he recognizes the counterpart, he recognizes a co-ruler who can serve alongside him, loving him, working with him, helping him in the same way that the Lord God helps man to complete his task, to complete his calling. And so that really does wrap up through verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2. Again, as with every one of these podcasts, there are so many more things that could be said, and I I do love it that many of you feel like you want to share those things with me, and I I love it. I want you to email me those thoughts, those questions. If you're concerned, why didn't you talk about this in a certain episode? Send me an email to unbindingthebible at gmail.com or go on Apple podcasts and give me a rating and then give me a review. This helps others who are searching for things like this to know, hey, There's something out there that might be able to give me some new thoughts, give me some new perspectives. But I am committed to keeping each of these episodes to about 30 minutes. But I would love to hear from you. This has been so much fun. You've given me a lot of encouragement along the way. Just those of you that have sent me notes or sent me text messages and said that you appreciate tuning in. But you can continue to to tune in. I hope you do. And But again, please send me your questions along the way so that I can continue to answer the types of things that you want to, for us to talk about. Until next time, have a great week.